Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspiredchurches.com. Well, we are in the middle of this series called Substitute Saviors. Substitute Saviors. And uh, this is the uh, fourth installment. Is it the fourth? I believe it's the fourth uh, installment of this series. And I'm excited to sort of dive in. But before we do that, what I want to do is I just kind of want to remind you of the strategy that we've really been presenting to you throughout this series, the, the strategy for our battle against idolatry. Because we want you to be free from the entrapment of these false substitute saviors, right? Through the true Savior, Jesus Christ. And and the framework that we've been uh, discussing over these several weeks in order to deal with this, in order to smash our idols is, number one, uh, we want you to begin to see idols everywhere, We want you to see that we live in a culture and in a society where there are idols in every corner, everywhere you turn, everywhere you look, every time you wake up, every time you lay down to go to bed, every time you go to eat and go to the fridge, every time you drive to work, every time you see a billboard, there are idols everywhere. When you look at your children, when you look at your spouse, there are idols everywhere. When you open your closet to get dressed, there are idols everywhere. We want you to realize that you are surrounded by a society, an economy of idolatry. Where you go, the relationships you're in, how you confront people and interact with people. Whatever you do, what you need to know is that everything and anything can become a substitute savior. Number two is not only do we want you to be able to identify the idols that are out there, but we want you to be able to discern the idols that are in here. The idols within our own hearts. What idols have we placed on the shelves of our hearts? What, what is it that our mind and our bodies um, are pursuing? What is it that our hearts are craving and desiring and submitting to? That's number two. And then finally, we want you to then apply the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want you to see the glory, the beauty, the majesty of who Jesus is. We want you to see the cross and the empty tomb. We want you to see him wrapped himself in flesh and was born of a virgin. We want you to see the gospel and all that it brings to all of us and how we need to swap those idols that we constantly are putting in the shelves of our heart for Jesus Christ. We want to look at the gospel and smash the idols. Now, last week, Pastor Phil's message, which actually, all of these messages have been incredible. Um, And in one way or another, uh, you're either gonna do one of two things when you're going through this series. You're either gonna tune some parts out, or you're gonna lean in and be willing to allow the surgeon's hand to cut you. Um, because that's just the nature of what this series does. And now last week, Pastor Phil, one of his uh, uh, sub points was about wealth and possessions. 
wealth and possessions. And today he's given me the assignment to take that and, and to take a closer look, to dive deeper into the idol of wealth and possessions. Now, the minute I say that, some of you probably are going to begin to think, okay, that's everyone else's problem, but not mine. That's everyone else's problem. And it doesn't matter, um, you know, what figures you make. It doesn't matter how much or how little you have in the bank. You're probably thinking this is someone else's problem, right? And you're probably thinking, well, that's some rich person's problem. And the rich person probably think that's some other richest person's problem. And, and you, you know, whatever the situation is. But I can guarantee you as we go through uh, this message, I think, uh, I hope, if we're honest enough, we'll be able to identify an idol there somewhere. Let's take a closer look. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 13. Luke 12, verse 13. And um, <laughs> Lorenzo and I are the ones that set up these lights this, this morning. And I realize they're like right in my eyeballs. So I can't really see you guys very well. So, but I can hear you. So just let me know. Luke chapter 12 says this, verse 13 says, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Notice that, all kinds of greed. Notice he didn't say just one kind, he said all kinds of greed. That probably means that there's some greed in you and me, some kind of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Amen. And so then Jesus told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced good crop. He thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? For yourself. See that? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body and what you will wear. Life is more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the, pagans, for the pagan worlds run after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek the kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, but a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart is there also. Wow. Wow. I want to just talk for a moment this morning on the caution, the condition, and the cure. The caution, the condition, and the cure. The band, Foster the People, in their song, Ask Yourself, has a lyric that says this, quote, And you say that dreamers always get what they desire. Well, I found the more I want, the less I've got. Is this the life you've been waiting for? Are you hoping that you'll be where you want with just a little more, unquote? Let me ask you this. Do you feel like you would be where you want in life if you had just a little more? A little more money in your paycheck? A little more cushion in your savings? A little more, maybe a retirement? A little more square footage in your house? A little more stuff in your home or your closet, right? Foster the People lyric is just a remix of the old maxim that says, the more you get, the more you want. This is the truth that cuts at the human condition. We've done work on human desire and how human desire is infinite. It's infinite. We've done work on a theological level where we, we, we know we've been made by God and for God. And so nothing less than full participation of an inner life with God God himself, nothing less than that will ever satisfy our desire. And when we move our desire, or if you prefer, we could say the word love, off of God, the creator, onto, like we've been saying this whole series, the creation, right? Even if those things are good things, be it money or staff or work or status, fame, romance, family, marriage, happiness, travel, you name it, it doesn't matter. None of it can bear up under the weight and pressure of human desire. Of human desire. So as a result, many of us live in this sort of chronic dissatisfaction. As one British poet put it, I can't get no satisfaction. And this is especially true when it comes to the idol of wealth and possessions. Let me just ask, not that I can see very many, but are there any Disneyland fans in the house this morning? Yes, just raise your hand. You like Disney, right? Okay, my hand is up. I love Disney, right? Walt Disney. Walt Disney was famous for saying that Disneyland will never be completed. What he was really saying is this, that the reason they purchased so much land, land that, that they did not utilize right away, land that one day they would use and they would expand on is because Walt Disney understood to some degree, at some level, the heart of the human condition, that we will never be satisfied, that we're always going to want more, that he's going to always have to change it and expand it and do a new park and do something else over here and change this ride and change that experience you see but Walt Disney wasn't the only one who knew this tech companies know this Google and Facebook Instagram TikTok they all know this too 
If you've watched the Netflix documentary called Social Dilemma where they explain that the reason some of these platforms are free to you and to me is because their advertisers pay them. That's how they're able to be free to us. Their advertisers pay them for who? For you. We become the product. They want to know our data. They want to know what, what we're interested in. What is it that we like? So that way, that ad can be placed before us so we can click, so we can say yes, so we can purchase, so we can buy. And even when we think we've had enough, all of a sudden, something new pops up on our screen. Right? That's how it is. That whole, the whole term, TikTok made me buy it. Anybody has TikTok, you kind of know. You kind of scroll and you see these items that they say TikTok made them buy. Or has this ever happened to you? Like maybe you're all of a sudden you're having a conversation with somebody and I don't know, you're talking about purple dinosaurs and next thing you know, when you get your phone and you start scrolling, what comes up? Ads for purple dinosaurs, right? It's inevitable. It's gonna happen, right? Right? You start talking about newest kitchen appliances and all of a sudden you're getting ads for, you know, Gordon Ramsay cookbooks and whatever else. It's because they know what Disney knew, what Jesus knew, which is that we covet. We covet. There is something within us, this desire for the newest upgrade, the better version, the more convenient or comfortable model, the name brand product. There's something within us, right? I couldn't just have an ordinary watch. No, I have to wear an Apple watch, Right? I think of the iconic line from John D. Rockefeller. At the time, he was the richest man. He was an oil tycoon. And when he was asked by a journalist, how much money is enough? He paused, and then he said this, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. No matter how much money you make or things you acquire or success you go after, you will always, always want just, a little bit more, right? Just a little bit more. Just as we are about to cross the finish line of satisfaction, the goalpost gets moved. And if our strategy to deal with our desire is an attempt to try and do it through wealth and possession, then it's a strategy that's designed to fail. In fact, Quaker John Woolman said of his own experience as a well-off merchant turned early abolitionist in our nation's history, he said this, with an increase of wealth, the desire of wealth increases. Research from social scientists has come to the conclusion as well. Look at Robert C. Roberts from Baylor University said, upward mobility often ends not in satisfaction and peace, but exhaustion, disappointment, and emptiness. Let me ask you this. Are you exhausted? How about disappointed? Or maybe even if we want to be real honest, empty. Empty. So what do we do? Well, the first thing we need to do is is listen to the warning, heed the caution that Jesus gives us in the text. Number one, the caution. 
See, there's this man and he goes to Jesus and, and the assumption is, is that his father has passed away and, and maybe he has an older brother or something that had, had gotten an inheritance that was meant for the family. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, listen, Jesus, tell my older brother to share the inheritance. Wow. Now, this is interesting because Jesus was not a Sanhedrin. He, he didn't deal with sort of, he wasn't a judge of anything. He didn't deal with legal matters. And so you have to ask yourself, why did this man go to Jesus? Perhaps it's because he knows that Jesus will do what's right, right? Of course, Jesus was gonna, I mean, right? Jesus is gonna do what's just. He's looking for justice. But because of how Jesus responds, it lets us know that Jesus discerns that there's something else going on beneath the surface. Isn't it interesting how with our idols, even good things, but we make them idols, we justify it. We justify the bowing down to them. Notice Jesus' particular, but peculiar and potent response. In verse 15, then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now there's a premise here, isn't there? There's an assumption when he says, watch out, be on your guard. The assumption is that greed is something that is hidden from you. That covetedness is something that, that isn't so bold, isn't so in your face. That's why you have to watch out for it. Notice Jesus doesn't say to watch out for something like, say, adultery, right? Why not? Well, because you kind of know when you're committing it, right? There's no confusion there. It's not like you roll over and you're like, oh, who are you, right? No, you know when you're doing it. But that must also mean that almost never do you know when you've gotten to the equally soul-destroying sin of greed, materialism, and what Tim Keller calls money-centricity. Money-centricity. There's something that is different about this idol than perhaps the rest. There's something unique about it because nobody who is materialistic feels like they're materialistic, right? Nobody who's greedy feels that they're greedy. I'm 37 years old and I've spent 22 years in ministry. Of those 22 years, 15 has been pastoral. And out of all of those years, people have come and they talk to me about all sorts of things. But one thing that they never, ever do, and I know Pastor Phil can also attest to this, and so could probably every pastor, is that they never sit down and say, you know, we need to confess a sin. And we say, well, what sin is it or something? And, and they say, well, it's the sin of greed. Wow. Never. Never has happened. They never say, Pastor, I need to just talk to you about something, you know, I, 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 I covet. I have a problem with coveting. Never happened. See? Now, we know that there's greedy people all around, don't we? We just don't think we're 
the greedy ones. We know greed exists out there, but we don't really identify it in here. See? Now, why would that be? Well, there's a number of interesting cultural reasons why this is maybe even truer today than in Jesus's time. Juliet Score, who's a Harvard economist, wrote a book called The Overspent American. And in it, she gives one of the reasons that it's truer today than ever that we do not see our own materialism, that we do not see our own money centricity, if you will, is the, the reason that we just don't even really think about it. We, we don't maybe even believe it's there. Is she says that our culture in many ways is no longer divided by class like it used to be. We're not segregated by class like it used to be, especially in places like the Bay Area. She says, instead, we are divided up by reference groups, right? The education groups, tech groups, medical groups, art groups. They're, they're sort of these groups of people that kind of hang out together and talk together and work together and do life together. Those groups. For example, we can take, you know, a literature group, right? Maybe a group of writers, you can have a young poet who's a waiter making 18000 per year. Then you can have an English teacher that makes 60000 per year. Then you can have editors and publishers earning six-figure incomes. And then authors, celebrities making millions of dollars, all part of one urban literary group. This group exerts pressure to drink the same brands of bottled water and wine, to wear the same urban literary clothing and fashions, to fill their apartments with the same urban literary furnishings. And yet, even those making 100000 per year could easily feel themselves as in an unattainable position. Do you see? Do you see what she's saying? She's saying that particularly because of the pluralism of our society, which is a good thing, right? But partly because of, the, of that and partly because of social media, not only are we bombarded with intimate details about lives of people who quote unquote live better than we do or make more than we do, we actually rub shoulders with them, right? Because of social media, we see into their lives, that is to say, if you make five or six figures a year, but you're constantly rubbing shoulders with somebody or digitally surrounded by people who make eight or nine figures a year, then you don't feel like you're that well off. Then of course you're not gonna feel materialistic in comparison. You're not gonna feel materialistic because look at them, right? You feel like you don't have that much, right? You walk into somebody's home and all of a sudden the lights automatically light up and, you know, the front door talks to you and you're like, wow, look at all, I mean, this, you know, I got this, right? So of course you don't feel materialistic when that happens, right? Therefore, nobody feels materialistic because everybody's rubbing shoulders with somebody else that has something more than them. Jesus says, watch out for the greed because in a way, it's like blindness. This idol is sneaky. It's sly. And that's an intrinsic part of its condition, of the sickness. 
Nobody who's greedy feels greedy. Nobody who's materialistic feels they're materialistic. That's part of the condition. Number two, the condition. Like a cancer, it's slow and gradual, slight. It causes slight changes, slight perceptions, slight, slight ways of, uh, 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 of manipulating our thinking, you see. Much like Lord of the Rings, right? In Lord of the Rings, there is one ring, this one ring of power made to control all of the other rings of power, right? One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them, right? For those who are Lord of the Rings fans, maybe it's just me, apparently. But in it, you have Frodo Baggins and you have Gollum, both who are ring bearers. But you know what's interesting is that when they get a hold of the ring, the power that this ring has, the, the, the way that it changes them, the way that it twists them, it, it's not something instantaneous. It doesn't happen the moment they put it on or the moment they touch it. But over time and after years and years and years, pretty soon, Gollum, who was once someone that looked healthy, end up being a creature that was sickly. And then his famous line, of course, he called the ring, my precious. My precious, you see. But it's gradual. It's hidden. If I were to go and I were to begin to, you know, pick out some of these idols that we have up here, I mean, you know, right away we could probably do something like, you know, this right? I mean, who wouldn't want a nice, beautiful MacBook Pro, right? I mean, who, who doesn't want an upgrade? Who doesn't want to be able to have something that looks sleek and, and nice? Of course. I could probably pick any of these things, and, and, and all of these things in one way or another could represent what we possess, but there's one that I wanted to maybe bring to our attention that is small and maybe a little bit out of sight. Put the donkey back up, sorry. For all those donkeys that fell, there you go. Not going to say anything about that. <laughs> but I wonder if anybody happened to this morning catch the one little difference that was made this week than all the rest of the week's. You know, it's crazy what this little thing can do to us, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. How much control and power this has over us. Because if you think about everything that's on here, probably had to go through here. Yeah, right? Wow. right? Your sports paraphernalia, your tickets, your homes, your cars, right? I mean, it had to go through here your makeup, your weights, whatever it is, all of the, I mean, it had to go probably so through here. So this little, seemingly insignificant, easily overlooked idol. It's the condition. See, in order to understand the sickness, in order to understand the condition, we have to look below our surface idols. See, because many of our idols on the surface are good things. Right. 
but they're being controlled, driven, fueled by a deeper idol. Look what Tim Keller says. He says, surface idols are the things through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. In other words, if we're going to get to the condition of what this is, you're going to have to allow the surgeon to come and to just dig a little bit deeper. You're going to have to allow the Holy Spirit to look into your heart and to bring up something that is down there that maybe we haven't even considered. In other words, though everybody knows in general how to find greed or materialism, the real question is, well, where do you draw the line? Right? I mean, where do you draw the line? Is that, are you saying, Pastor Roger, that we shouldn't buy groceries for my kids and I shouldn't get them a backpack? I mean, what are you saying? Right? Because that's, that's, that's obviously the right way because we want to justify. So we're automatically going to be like, well, okay, well, then what are we talking about here? You know? Are you saying I can't drive a certain kind of car? Are you saying I can't live in a certain kind of house? Are you saying I shouldn't have so much in my bank account? Are you saying not to wear Nike shoes? I should wear some off-brand shoes? Is that what you're saying I need to do? And you'll be, you'll, you'll, you want to take it and you want to make it into a formula and legalize it, right? right? right. Why? Because all you want to do is just work. You just want to be in control. I mean, it's just idols. It's idols. <laughs> so when is it too much? How do you know when, munch, when money is too central, right. right? How do we know when we've crossed that line? What are the effects of the condition? How do we know if we've made this a substitute savior in our hearts? Yeah. Well, quickly, I'm going to give you three things that start with S, right? Substitute savior starts with S, just because. So, number one, spurious joy. It means false, a sham, pseudo counterfeit, fake, a fake kind of joy. Look at verse 18. Then he said, this is what I'll do. The man who was like, I have so much crops and stuff. What am I going to do? He says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, I have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be married. See, one way you know that you've crossed the line is when you rely on possession and wealth to bring you some sort of happiness. When you're depressed, stressed out, anxiety-filled, does buying something make you feel better? Right? Does going shopping or ordering something online somehow bring a sense of happiness so much that when you're down, that that's the one thing that you'll run to, you'll turn to? Right? Another debit out of the account, another charge on the card. Somehow the notification that your order is on its way momentarily sedates your sadness, right? And if the tracking update lets you know that it's going to come later than expected, or if the curbside pickup isn't ready yet, or if the Starbucks line is too long and you need that coffee because, well, the instant in your cupboard just won't cut it. And all of a sudden, on any of these reasons, you get upset, right? Or maybe everyone else is getting their Disneyland tickets in and, and you know you can't afford it, but you figure out a way because you need it to bring you joy. Another vacation, another getaway, another new device or accessory to the accessory to the accessory of the device. 
right? For many of you, and this is me included, you know, you go and you finally are able to buy a home and praise God, you're a homeowner. And then guess what? It just wasn't enough. I mean, you're happy with it. It's your dream house until you walk into somebody else's dream house that now is your dream house. Just Right? Bigger barns so I could take it easy and drink and be merry. But let me just say this. That joy is short-lived. As quick as it comes, it goes. Number two, Maybe for you, you look towards wealth and possessions as a sense of safety or security, right? When you look to your wealth and possessions as a way of feeling safe, of feeling secure, well, I want to make sure I have enough in my savings account because, you know, you just want to make sure it's there in case anything else goes wrong. I want to I just build it up and build it up and build it up and build it up because it makes me feel safe makes me feel safe. Look at this in verse 24. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? See, they don't have huge barns that they start storing stuff in. In other words, here's a man that is saying deep in his heart, deep in his self, he's saying, here's how I'm able to control the uncontrollable. Here's how I'm able to have control in an uncontrollable world is through wealth and possessions. This is how I make sure that I'm good and my family's good and that we're safe and that we're okay. So no matter what comes, we will survive it. We'll be okay. It's your way and my way of making sure that we try to control something, my friends, that is uncontrollable. That's all it is. It's trying to be in control. See? But tragedies, accidents, sickness, broken relationships, death. Let me just say this. Wealth and possessions don't do a thing to totally stop any of that. And yet, psychologically, you're looking to this idol because it makes you feel safe. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, who is a lion and represents Jesus Christ, um, is this you know gorgeous huge lion and and Lucy who is found her way to Narnia is talking to Mr. Beaver and 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 Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are having a discussion with her and talking about how well we'd love to bring you to meet Aslan maybe one day you'll meet him and Lucy asks Mr. Beaver a question he she says well is he safe is he safe Mr. Beaver says safe Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king. See, our Bible tells us from the get-go that Christianity does not guarantee safety. That turmoil and trouble and suffering and pain are all part of a Christian's reality. Look at this, verse 25. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? See, if you don't think that maybe materialism is your problem, then let me ask you something. Do you worry about money? Do you have anxiety over it? Does it cause stress? Does it cause you to fight with one another about it? Right? If so, 
then you have an unhealthy sense of security and you've made it your source. See, idols are what you're willing to sin to get or what you're willing to sin to keep. Now, another way of being able to identify an idol is being able to say, well, what is it that you're worried about? What is your nightmare? What is your nightmare? If your nightmare is, let's just say, rejection, then you'll do whatever it takes to not be rejected. If that's your nightmare. If your nightmare is somehow that you're not going to be a good enough mom or a good enough dad, so you got to do whatever it takes to make sure that your child has the best life, the good life, well, then that's an idol. What are you worrying about? If you're worrying about money, then it's an idol. See? Notice that. Verse 30 says, the pagans run after these things, but you have a father. The pagans have these gods and they run after these things, but you have a father. Do you see what he says there? In other words, this idol will make you an orphan. Because when you begin to worry about things like uh, possession and wealth and have anxiety, what you're doing is you're forgetting about the father that you have. You're forgetting about the God that you serve. You're forgetting that he never leaves you and he never forsakes you. You're forgetting that he's always with you. You're forgetting that no matter what you go through, high uh, waters, through fiery furnaces, he's always there. He doesn't stand on the outer perimeters watching in, but he comes in and he walks with you and he guides you through it. You see, he suffers as well. You are forgetting about the God that you serve, the God that knows your needs and is able to provide them. You see, wow. Some people use money for control, but some people use money for approval. For example, one of the reasons we need money so much, one of the reasons we spend it on ourselves, one of the reasons we don't give it away like we should is because money is our significance. Significance. Uh, another way of being able to say, well, how do I know what, what the condition is? How do I know um, if, if, if this thing has become a, a, an idol? Well, because it's become a way for you to value yourself, right? Right? You're able to live in certain places and eat certain things, right? Hang out in certain social circles, dress in certain ways. All of that makes us feel important, doesn't it? Of course it does, right? We have a tendency to do that. The higher up economically we get, we don't just look at other people below us and say, oh, well, they're economically below us. No, we begin to think they're literally below us, that somehow we're better than, Right? Of course you do, right? You don't have to be well-off. Middle-class people in general feel superior to the poor, don't we? We do. We give money to the poor because we feel sorry. We pity them, we, but, but we feel superior. We feel like we are somehow better than they are with no good reason to feel that way. When we feel like we're better economically than somebody else, we automatically feel like we're just better, a better human than they are. When we're at a higher caliber socioeconomically, we feel like we we are at a higher caliber 
You see, it's so automatic. It's so fast because money is something many of us take and want to say, this is my significance. This is what makes me feel important. This is what makes me feel valuable. See? Money is the place where we try to convince ourselves of our value. But you can also think the other way. If you feel like maybe you don't have enough money, if you feel like for some reason maybe you're struggling financially and because of that, then somehow you think that you're less of because of it. You see? And so you begin to put yourself down. If you are not having enough money, if you're not getting money, it's easy to start to say, well, then I'm an inadequate person. And you're doing the same sin. You're basing your value on money and wealth and possessions. Right? The church father, Cyprian, said this, the property held them in chains, chains which shackled their courage and choked their faith and hampered their judgment and throttled their soul. If they stored up their inheritance in heaven, they would not have an enemy and a thief within their own household. They think of themselves as owners, whereas it is they rather who are owned enslaved as they are to their own property. They are not the masters of their money, but it's slaves, right? Cue the quip, right? Do you own your things or do your things own you? So what do we do? What's the solution? What's the point number three? The cure. We get ready to close. The cure. Look at this. Verse 31 says, but seek the kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out and a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You see, um, when you say to yourself, well, I look at this man and he, and he had this great crop and it produced much, much food. And, and, and so he asked himself, well, what am I going to do? I can't, I don't have a big enough place to store all of that. I have all this stuff. Look at all this stuff. I don't, what am I going to do? And he says, I know I'll tear down barns and I'll build bigger barns so I could put it in there. And if you're sitting here like, well, what's wrong with that? Oh, my friend, my friend, you see, When you enter into the gospel, what you realize is it doesn't make you a more selfish person. It makes you a more selfless person. In other words, well, why did he have to keep it for himself? If his barns were full, why why couldn't he give it away to someone else who maybe didn't have as much? But see, he didn't think that way, did he? The condition. Where your treasure is, your heart is. In other words, in order for the cure, you have to personify your treasure. You have to personify your treasure. What do you mean? You have to make Jesus your treasure. See? 
And when you do that, then all of a sudden you are free. You have, you, you begin to break and shatter this idol in your life. You begin to break away from the chains of this substitute savior, this substitute savior. In fact, all of these substitute saviors who will, who will overpromise and under deliver every time. You will be free, not bound to materialism. You, you'll be free not to look down on others that have more than you. I mean, less than you. And not to look down on yourself because you have less than someone else. You're now free to give your money away radically to those in need. Because ultimately, your security is in the Father. You see? You're free from anxiety and worry because you know you're not an orphan. And so the late nights of stressing out and how you're going to do it and how you're going to make this happen and what's going to happen here or the times where you fight and you argue and, and, it, and it's over finances and funds and all this other stuff. Don't you see that it's never over finances and funds? If any of you have ever, you know, went to Pastor Sherry or some other counselor and you start talking about how you're having marital problems and it's all these, these fights over money, it's never over money. That's the surface idol. The deep idol is you're scared because it's how you are able to keep control or it's because that's how you value something. That's how you feel significant. You see? There's an idol under the idol that is feeding constantly. How do you make Christ your treasure? By realizing that he had the ultimate treasure. He was the Lord of the universe. He had the ultimate status. He had the ultimate sense of security. He was the son of the father but he came to earth and he went to a cross. He was utterly stripped of all possession. Do you see that? He was stripped naked of all his belongings and all his possessions. And that's just an echo of the fact that he was spiritually stripped. And unless you know that he was willing to lose all of his treasure so you could be his treasure, then this idol will always have control. See, because ultimately idols will require you to die to purchase them. But Jesus died to purchase you. Seek first the kingdom. That's what this passage says. That's what Jesus says. How is it that we make him our treasure? By seeking him and looking at the cross and looking at the empty tomb and seeing and understanding what is it that the gospel means? That it's not something I can earn. It's not something that I can somehow do enough of and one day I'll just be accepted because somehow I was great or, or, or I was religious enough. No, but, but it's because of God's grace, you see. And until Jesus is the treasure of your heart, then the treasures of this world will always be your substitute saviors that will never bring true satisfaction. How do you make it to where you can have this, but this doesn't have you? By coming back to the heart of worship, 
by coming back to your true love, by making Jesus your treasure. Could we stand to our feet?